belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for June 13th, 2021 is called Defiant Hope. The speaker is Laura Holland and the location is Pratt Place Barn in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Um, I am so excited to be here. Welcome again to everyone. However, you're, you're listening to, to this. Um, I think we're almost done. Roland, are we good? Uh-huh. Sweet, sweet. Okay. Good. So the other day, we were heading out to pick up breakfast. We had ordered it. We were on our way to go to the park to eat and play. We got to the restaurant a little bit early, and there was a coffee shop nearby. So all of the adults in the car were like, score. This is a blessing. We have time to get some much-needed coffee first. This is wonderful. As we pulled into the parking spot at the coffee shop, my five-year-old Charlie yelled from the back, where are we? We're just getting coffee. We're just quickly adding something to our plans. It's fine. And her response was, this is not what I had hoped. So my first response to that was, life's tough, chickadee. Like, we're just getting coffee. It's fine. But then she said it again, and this time with a little bit more despair. This is not what I had hoped. You told me that we were getting breakfast. Where are we? That time I knew that I needed to respond a little bit differently. Because I knew that this was just a quick stop. I knew we were early. Our breakfast wasn't done yet. I knew that the restaurant was also within my eyesight. We were right there. But that's not what she knew. To her, I had promised her something and wasn't fulfilling it. To her, her breakfast was getting cold. Her playground dreams were delayed. I wasn't holding up my end of the bargain. To her, this was not what she had hoped. She had trusted me. She believed me. And haven't we all been there, whether we're five or 95, where we're sitting in the back of a car, we're not the ones in control, and we look around and we're like, this is not what I had hoped. This is not what I had hoped. Which brings us to this morning's reading from Isaiah 61. Setting the stage, John told us last week that the original hearers of this message were very much in a, this is not what I had hoped kind of situation. The good news was they had been allowed to return from exile. They were back in Jerusalem. Even better news, the king had given them some funds and permission to help rebuild their temple. This is great. But this still wasn't the answer to all of their problems. All of their issues hadn't gone away. They still had local authorities that were oppressing them, trying to thwart their temple building efforts. This still was not what they had hoped. But then they hear this. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has chosen me. He has commissioned me to encourage the poor, to help the brokenhearted, to decree the release of captives and the freeing of prisoners, to announce the year when the Lord will show his favor, the day when our God will seek vengeance to console all who mourn, to strengthen those who mourn in Zion by giving them a turban instead of ashes, Oil symbolizing joy instead of mourning. A garment symbolizing praise instead of discouragement. They will be called oaks of righteousness, 
trees planted by the Lord to reveal his splendor. They will rebuild the perpetual ruins and restore the places that were desolate. They will reestablish the ruined cities, the places that have been desolate since ancient times. Foreigners will take care of your sheep. Foreigners will work in your fields and vineyards. You will be called the Lord's priests, servants of your God. You will enjoy the wealth of nations and boast about the riches you receive from them. Instead of shame, you'll get a double portion. Instead of humiliation, you will rejoice over the land you receive. Yes, they will possess a double portion in their land and experience lasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice and hate robbery and sin. I will repay them because of my faithfulness, and I will make a permanent covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations, their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will recognize that the Lord has blessed them. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. I will be overjoyed because my God, for he clothes me in garments of deliverance. He puts on me a robe symbolizing vindication. I look like a bridegroom when he wears a turban as a priest would. I look like a bride when she puts on her jewelry. For just as the ground produces its crops and a garden yields its produce, so the sovereign Lord will cause deliverance to grow and give his people reason to praise him in the sight of all the nations. Y'all, this is good news. They hear that they're promised freedom and authority and power and prosperity. And they're given a template for how they'll respond with joy and praise, rebuilding, restoring, reestablishing, and feasting. These promises, this picture painted is incredible. And not only do they get what they deserve, but the people that have been oppressing them and harming, they get what they're gonna deserve too. Vengeance. This is the best possible thing that they could hope for. And they're told that they can count on it because just as the ground produces its crops and a garden yields its produce, as sure and natural as those things are, this is just God being God. This is what God does. They may not be able to see it now, but there is room for wild, imaginative, greater than they could ever think of on their own, hope. But the same thing that makes it grand that it's a promise so massive it's beyond their wildest dream is what makes it kind of hard to believe. Or, as we say in my house, makes it so bummer. Because they're surrounded by reminders of their current state. Like they're hearing these promises, but they're seeing the rubble of their splendid temple that was destroyed. And then they're looking at the one being rebuilt. It's not quite as grand. They're hearing these promises and they're asked to hope, but everywhere they look are reminders of their past choices of sin, both their own and sin of others that's still impacting them. They see reminders of shame. They see generational trauma and families divided. And they're under the rule of a government that isn't their own and local authorities that just won't let them catch a break. That's their reality. That's what they see when they look around. There's this idea of the adjacent possible. Theoretical biologist Stuart Kaufman coined the term in his 2002 book, At Home in the Universe. But essentially, it is this idea that our ability to imagine 
to create, to innovate is dependent on where we are now, what we are now, for where we're going to go next, the next possible thing. Using an example, we couldn't have gone from the Ford Model T to the Tesla Model 3 immediately. That wasn't an option. We can't go from something where we don't have the technology, the innovation that hasn't happened to join those two. The prophet's promises in Isaiah 61, they're not the adjacent possible. These things are beyond what they could imagine. In our teaching team meeting this week, John commented that we live in the construct of what we believe is possible. These promises that they're hearing flew possible out of the water. And yet we know, in retrospect, that they didn't even understand the half of it. So at Grace, we seek to read and understand scripture through the framework of what it meant to the original hearers, what it meant to the early church, and what it means to us. Isaiah is often quoted in the New Testament, which we'll be diving into as we move to Romans in the next month. Um, but Isaiah 61 is unique. Jesus uses the first two verses of this passage in Luke 4 when he announces his public ministry. So he is speaking to a people that find themselves kind of in a similar spot as the original hearers. Things aren't terrible. There's a list of good things that are happening to them, but they're under the rule of a government that's not theirs, that is oppressive, and things aren't what they had hoped. And so Jesus gets up and he proclaims his ministry. And he says that he's coming to heal, to encourage, and to set captives free. But in making this announcement, using a text that's really well known to his audience, he does two notable things. First, he leaves out the part about vengeance. Instead of approaching it like pie, that the good that they're going to receive necessitates the bad of others, that their prosperity is the bad news bears for other people, that their authority requires the servitude of someone else, he paints a picture of justice for everybody. The second thing that he does is he says that he is the answer to this promise. Whoa now. Can you imagine sitting in that synagogue that day and be like, ooh, I love this scripture reading. Like, get that scroll out. This is the one that I find out my prosperity is coming, my power is coming. And then the kid that grew up down the street from you gets up and says, this whole thing that you've been hanging your hat on, me, I'm the answer to it. Whether you're confused, not quite sure what's happening, or mad, we know that the original hearers did not understand or like this. We know that because their response was to try to kill him by throwing him off a cliff. So we can be pretty sure. But the thing is, this was what they were hoping for. This is what they understood. With the adjacent possible construct, there was no other way for them to understand the promises that they had been given and how it could happen without vengeance. There was no way to grasp that authority, power, or prosperity could come in any way other than from taking it from someone else. In a zero-sum game world, they cannot fathom that any of these things can be realized from within. We still live in that world 
many times today. I know I've fallen into a scarcity um, mindset trap, thinking that if good things are happening to someone else, that somehow the hope for me to receive something good has diminished in relationship to it. When someone else gets a new job or a promotion, even if it's in a field that has absolutely nothing to do with you, and you find yourself feeling hopeless about your own career prospects, you're responding with a scarcity mindset. When someone shows pictures of their beautiful home on Facebook, and your first response is jealousy, and thinking, man, I'll never have a home like that, it's another clue. I know in hindsight, the one that's the wildest for me is when people would announce their engagements, and my immediate response was, I'm never going to get married. To be clear, there was not a single time someone announced their engagement, and I wanted to marry any of the people involved in that. Even if it had been a zero-sum game, I would have preferred zero. But this is what our mind does. It warps these, these good things and turns it into something that is hopeless for us, even if in hindsight it makes no sense. So, even though I know better, I still do this. But that doesn't stop me from being a little bit judgmental when I read about those that were listening to Jesus' message in the synagogue, right? It doesn't stop me from being like, hmm, is that really how we should respond? But a vengeance-based, zero-sum game, scarcity mindset trap is real. And those hearing Jesus announce his public ministry, they probably felt like this was just one more blow to their chance of getting ahead. We hear it as good news. They hear that their promises are now going to be answered in the kid who grew up down the street. How? Him? What does this even mean? We read the story knowing that Jesus is the hero. They read it thinking Jesus is trying to take something from them. We hear it as hopeful. They might have heard it as hopeless. It reminds me of the Chinese parable of the old man who was the poorest man in the village, but he owned a beautiful white stallion. And the king had offered a small fortune for the stallion. After a harsh winter, during which the old man and his family nearly starved, the townspeople came to visit. Old man, they said, you can hardly afford to feed your family. Sell the stallion and you'll be rich. If you don't, you'll be a fool. It's too early to tell, replied the old man. A few months later, the old man woke up to find that the white stallion had run away. Once again, the townspeople came and they said to the old man, See, if you had sold your horse to the king, you'd be rich. Now you have nothing. You're a fool. It's too early to tell, replied the old man. Two weeks later, the white stallion returned, and along with it came three other white stallions. Oh, man, the townspeople said, we're the fools. Now you can sell the stallion to the king, and you still have three stallions left. You're smart. It's too early to tell, said the old man. following week, the old man's only son was breaking in one of the stallions and was thrown, crushing both of his legs. The townspeople, again, super helpful people, paid a visit to the old man. They said, old man, if you just sold the stallion to the king, you'd be rich, and your son would not be crippled. You're a fool. It's too early to tell, said the old man. The next month, 
war broke out in a neighboring village. All of the young men in the village were sent into the battle, and all were killed. The townspeople came, and they cried to the old man, We've lost our sons. You're the only one who is not. If you had sold your stallion to the king, your son too would be dead. You are so smart. It's too early to tell, said the old man. This long story to get to the point that when we have to take right now this point in time to declare this is good or this is bad, this is hopeful or this is hopeless, we have missed the beauty that comes with the long view. I'm not saying to be hopeful because if your life seems terrible right now, heaven, I mean, that's one way of looking at the long view, and yeah, heaven. But talking here and now, sometimes the distance between hopelessness and hopefulness is a little bit of time and a shifting perspective. But if that's all there is to it, why is hope hard? Or, in other words, what keeps us from hoping? We discussed this in our teaching team meeting and several things came up. And some you might relate to, some you might not. I'm pretty sure if you're thinking through some reasons to be hopeless, you're going to come up with things that we didn't. And some of the things that we thought about were that sometimes hopelessness can take the form of being bought in, of wanting to be hopeful, but also waiting for the other shoe to drop. It's kind of a hope purgatory. Other times we avoid being hopeful for fear of being wrong, for fear of looking like a fool. Sometimes it's just easier not to hope. And then other times, it could be cynicism that keeps us from hoping. Author Brad Jersick writes, cynicism is clever, trendy, and even a bit prophetic, but in the end functions only to steal hope. Cynicism is the Grinch, and hope is Christmas. And according to the nocebo effect principle, that if you believe something won't happen, it won't, a cynic is often right. But as much as I like to be right, and let's be real, I do. I don't want to be right on account of disbelief. I don't know that that's worth it. So as I was thinking about this, I also wondered if the only options were hopeful and hopeless. Because sometimes I don't feel without hope, but I'm also not full of hope. And it reminded me of the movie 10 Things I Hate About You, where they're discussing how you can be overwhelmed and you can be underwhelmed. But can you ever just be whelmed? The answer is you can in Europe, but is there a whelmed version of hope? Does that exist? These deep, deep questions aside, we truly ponder these in your heart. But how do we get there? What does practicing hope look like? Because hope is more than an empty feeling. Hope is transgressive. Hope is countercultural. Hope is not the easy road. And I believe that practicing hope requires practice. So how do we practice it? Maybe hope like joy is something that we have to approach somewhat sideways. Where we need to first figure out the elements of hope, maybe the opposite of hope, to help us out. When I was growing up, I loved the movie The Little Princess. And I would get lost in the power of the main character, Sarah's imagination. In this story, for those who have had the misfortune of not seeing it, Sarah comes from a wealthy family. 
but she is left at a boarding school during World War I when her father, a soldier, goes to war. Due to cross wires and misinformation, the headmistress is led to believe that Sarah will not be able to pay her dues or tuition fees anymore. And so they move Sarah from her beautiful room with all these toys and a four-poster bed, and it's just a little girl's dream. And they move her to essentially an attic closet with two cots that she now shares with Becky, who's another little girl who has always been there to serve everyone. Sarah, newly relegated to a life of serving her former classmates and her teachers to pay off a debt that isn't really hers, turns to imagination and hope to get through the hard times. Sarah had seen the things that she was imagining before, but Becky, her roommate, had not. But because of Sarah's hope, Becky started to believe. She learned to believe, and then she was able to see a hopeful future, too. In that, Becky's outlook changed, and in times of trial, she was then able to remind Sarah to be hopeful. It's a beautiful story that reminds us that hope is contagious. Sometimes we have to start towards hopefulness by borrowing someone else's. Sometimes our hope will make the difference for somebody else. It also shows us that imaginative hopefulness isn't nice. Maybe it is what our situation calls for. The ends calls it chosen naivete, and Kate Fuller calls it stubborn hope. Either way, it is an acceptance of reality. They don't require ignoring what is. Instead, they accept what is and choose to look forward with hope regardless. This is a defiant look at reality. It's one that's able to hold both what is and what could be at the same time. So the original hearers understood that their authority, power, and prosperity would be gained through tipping the scales, not riding the scales of injustice, but tipping them in their favor, and control would be theirs. Or would it? Because choosing hope necessitates letting go of control. I like control about as much as I like being right, so bad disclaimer here. But hope is cooperative, and it's something for us to practice. But our role is not to be the ones running the show. Our role is to trust the one who is. Now look, I know that anything that would fit on a bumper sticker or would be great crocheted on a pillow really runs the risk of being an empty platitude that's only loosely based on actual theology. So please hear me when I say our role is not the easy one. Trusting, letting go of control, not easy. Being hopeful in the face of what you see immediately around you, not easy. But whether we look at history or our own lives, we can see that over the long arc, hope and control can't be held together. And I don't know about you, but when I seek to exert control over every facet of my life, that's when everything's about to come crumbling down. So, while we can't control everything going on around us, no matter how hard we might try to, we can choose to replace a scarcity mindset for a posture of generosity. It's hard to practice hopefulness if we're hoarding things just in case. Just in case. Generosity is also a good weapon against vengeance. We've already discussed how Jesus took that part out and how thrilled the original hearers for that message were when he did it. We want what's ours. 
and sometimes things that aren't ours that we actually don't even want, but we think we want them right then. But a posture of generosity turns that on its head. Let's replace conditional thinking that if she gets this piece of pie, then I don't get the pie I want with the truth that God is a God who promises things beyond our wildest imagination in abundance. Also, the world's not pie. Like, not. While we're being generous, let's generously celebrate others. Celebrate with them. Celebrate for them. Celebrate them. We already know that hope is contagious. So whether the hope is caught from them or given to them from our celebratory gener- from our celebratory generosity, let's celebrate with abandon. Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find more about us online at gracechurchmwa.org. Grace and peace.